1: Mueller, the special prosecutor, made very clear that he couldn't reach a determination on obstruction of justice, basically because of certain Justice Department guidelines which didn't allow him to do that, but that he laid it out for Congress, for Congress to do, not for the Attorney General to arrogate to himself the power to do it.
0: Bipartisan members of Congress made it clear that they had lost confidence in
2: Director Comey. And most importantly, the rank and file of the FBI had lost confidence in their director.
0: They're having a good day. I'm having a good day too. It was called no collusion, no obstruction. Hello, and welcome to TrumpCast. I'm Virginia Heffernan, and I am tired. This finals week sucks. I'm sick on Jolt Cola and Marlboro Reds. Actually, someone said it should be Red Bull and Jewel to keep up with the Youngs. So anyway, I'm sick on Red Bull and Jewel, whatever that is, from staying up all night reading this damn Mueller report. On the other hand, I can't stop laughing at Guccifer 2's prose style. I mean, it's in the report, and that guy, Guccifer, is kind of a genius of the language. So before my guest, Jed Sugarman, comes on to discuss the serious details and consequences of the Mueller report and Barr's failed effort to misleadingly frame it, I'm going to do something totally trivial, my Guccifer 2 impression. No Russian accent though since it's just text. So I know you're all disappointed. Anyway, here's my Goosefer. Hi there. Do you want some dirt on Bloodust sadist Hillary? If you do, write back. It is utmost pleasure to serve beloved boss 55th birthday. Also, this will be so fun. Grab her by the pussy. She is neolib sadist. Thank you Julian, you are hot. Okay, no one does it better than I do my Goosefer impression. Joining me on the line is Slate favorite Jed Sugarman. He's a professor at Fordham Law School. He's a Yale JD, and he's got a PhD in history. He writes frequently for Slate on legal matters. I'll be back with Jed in just a minute, but first, we have a new sponsor on Trumpcast today. It's a pharmaceutical brand that might be of interest to one listener in particular.
2: It's more common than you might think. Lady Justice is looking good. She's coming at you fast. You feel that old guilt start to rise, but you can't do anything about it. Many men over the age of 50 experience obstructile dysfunction. OD is a condition where men find it hard to obstruct justice because the people under them simply won't follow orders. Have you been in a situation where you had every intention to commit obstruction, but no one was willing to go to jail for you? Maybe it's time you ask your doctor about Obstruxia. Obstruxia is a drug that inspires loyalty and blinds attorneys and advisors to the risks you're asking them to undertake. If you've experienced more than 10 episodes of attempted obstruction, Obstruxia might be right for you. Before you know it, you'll be actually affecting the investigation instead of ranting and raving about wanting a Roy Cohn in your life. Obstruxia. Isn't it time you turned your hostile intent into actual prosecutable action? Obstruction is not for everyone. Some patients reported everyone around them going to jail. Certain men under 50 might be too dumb to obstruct. Ask your doctor if your conscience is flawed enough for criminal activity. Call your physician if an obstruction lasts longer than four hours.
0: Jed, welcome back to Trumpcast.
1: Thank you for having me back, Virginia.
0: Before we get into the details, I want just a little context for yesterday. Yesterday, the beginning was the thing we're used to in Trump times, which was a spectacle, a press conference called. We all had to tune in as if for the moon landing to see Barr knew what most of us knew he would do, which is obfuscate and manipulate the information we were about to get in the form of the Mueller report. Most of us had set our expectations low. I know I had. I I actually deliberately did a process of, as I went to bed the night before, of thinking this is not anything like Christmas morning. This is going to be a disappointment. This is going to be like the bar letter or like the Kavanaugh confirmation. It's just about to happen and I need to relax into it. But then the second half of the day, or even more than a half, was spent reading this massive document. And those of us who've cortisol levels are spiked, whose attention spans have been hijacked by the news cycle poisoning, had to slow way, way down. And I have to just ask you straight up, did you finish it?
1: I finished it by some version of reading, skimming, and then going back to see what later on what other commentators spotted. Yeah, um, that that was my and and then going back and reading more closely the the spots where I realized I had um, I had been uh, uh, redact lighted, or something. Yeah, um, it's ha- that was.
0: That was such a good point you made. Both of us did uh, did PhDs for what they're worth um, and <laughs> uh, and um, spent a long time reading in graduate school. And you had this great point because as readers, you feel like a burden has been lifted when you come across a black page you don't have to read.
1: That's exactly right. Um, I think people who spend a lot of time reading big documents in short periods of time whether that's for a, a history or a humanities PhD or a, as lawyers, yes, uh, we all get, we all get trained to try and figure out what to read closely and what to skim. And this had the warped effect of re- going and seeing so many blacked out pages. I mean, on the one hand, my first reaction yesterday, I said this to Dolly Lithwick and I said, Oh, this was less redacted than I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was also part of the gaslighting or part of the bar expectation setting. Yeah. You know, he talked about redactions so much that I think we were all conditioned to expect a lot of redactions. And then yeah. the, the problem is then when you get those redactions on this point, you get trained in the rest of your life to say, oh, this this writer helped me by showing me what to skip. This, yes. this, is, this is less relevant than other stuff. And my brain just did that automatically as I processed it because it was blacked out. Be, but in fact, the, uh, it might be more important. Well, that's exactly it is. Obviously, <laughs> I mean, that and precisely now that I've had a chance to go back and reread between the things that I where there are hints that I and other people sort of picked up on that are not blacked out. Then I go back as the, when I went back this morning to go back and check it. I'm now struck by how much significant stuff might be under those redactions.
0: Okay, so you said something to me in DMs that I'm going to make public without your permission, which is (laughs) you were feeling yesterday critical of Robert Mueller. I mean, that has almost been heresy till now since we've made him our great hope all this time and with so much ink spilled about his integrity and his conscientiousness and his military discipline. But it wasn't just bar who to some extent disappointed us yesterday, there was something even in the report, the things it left out, the refusal to commit to further indictments, the general conservatism of it that was frustrating.
1: Yes, let's go there. Let's talk about Robert Mueller, maybe small C conservative and maybe big C conservative. Now, just yesterday with uh, I, I was talking to Dahlia and I said I, I want to defend something by Mueller first. I, I I think there's a lot of second guessing about not getting a live not getting live testimony from from Donald Trump and I think that still we have to put that in context. It would have delayed things. It who knows how that might have triggered we now know from this actual document on obstruction that Trump already did try to fire him once. So so let me set that I want to say that I still think we sh- there's many there are many choices that are um, I, I think understandable and hard to question in hindsight. But let me highlight some things that I think are are troubling about the way that Mueller handled both the the Russian contacts question mm-hmm. and the obstruction question. So First, volumes
0: one and two.
1: Volumes one and two. <laughs> okay. Let me highlight on the Russian question. I think that there were there were spots where the um the the questions were understated and buried. And also there was a lack of clarity from the beginning about what standard Mueller was using. Let me emphasize that at the very end of the document, at the end of volume one, when 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 team Mueller has to come back and and decide about whether to indict on several key moments like the June Trump Tower meeting, and other kinds of key potential conspiratorial moments, mm-hmm. the team uses that the the standard of proving it beyond a reasonable doubt. They use it ten times, mm-hmm. but the, but here's here's my concern. They used it ten times about specific questions, and I'm really uh, surprised that when they wrote these documents, they didn't. Highlight their legal standards at the place where every when it, when you read a Supreme Court opinion or a Court of Appeals opinion or legal documents, the writers explain what their legal standard is from the beginning. And mm. I think it's easy to lose sight because of how frankly this is a, this is a mistake in the way mm-hmm. this is by not stating clearly from the outset, which what what I think is implicit at the end that the that Team Mueller used a standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. that allow that first of all doesn't set this report clearly to the public about about the the fact that they were using a high standard for a criminal prosecution and it's the correct let me say i think that's also right i think it's Are i you? think more prosecutors should take into account the importance of not indicting people unless they think they, that there's sufficient evidence to get a conviction mm-hmm. but what this does for the public is that it is confusing about when you know it also allows Barr to say it in his letter. Um, the the the, uh, the special counsel's office did not establish a criminal Russia, a criminal conspiracy with Russia. That gave Barr enough room to use that phrase do not did not establish without mm-hmm. articulating what the standard was. And mm-hmm. I actually think that the, the that Mueller's team in some ways, accidentally or uh, I think accidentally enabled Barr to do that and wrote this report unclearly from that from that point. That's so that's one big picture point. Yep. Second big picture point. I think that it was an error to use that language about not establishing um, when I think that the evidence they showed in the Russia report does establish um, by by another standard, by a preponderance of the evidence Mm -hmm. that there was a criminal conspiracy involving Donald Trump himself. So mm-hmm. again, I, I understand why they didn't indict. But when you're writing a document, and I, I think many people have talked about that this document has different audiences, a, a document about whether to indict, but also a document explicitly addressed to Congress.
2: Mm-hmm. This,
1: the, I, the team should have looked at a, what we now know were a series of events that in context show that Trump was essentially soliciting... Uh, a, a foreign campaign contribution mm-hmm. and was arguably soliciting hacking in broad daylight, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So, so part of this is also, and I I, I don't want to overuse this phrase gaslighting, but I think it's a different thing. I think there's a cognitive dissonance when you, when you hear the word conspiracy, you expect it to be behind the scenes, caught on tape in the Oval Office, right? Yeah. And then revealed after investigation, Um In context with this report, plus what we already saw with our own eyes, when Trump gets up and says, Russia, if you're listening, Mm -hmm. go find Hillary's emails. Mm -hmm. That was, first of all, you know, it it was dissonant to see that in broad daylight. But I want to highlight how this report gives us more context um, about why that really was a potentially a criminal conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And specifically, what What we see in volume two, let me let me dig down just a little bit on this question, please. In volume two on page 18, there is Does everyone have
0: their hymnals open.
1: Well, pause. If you're playing at home, you can (laughs) can go to your PDF. You can search for this passage. But first of all, half of it's blacked out. But several people have highlighted, first of all, that Trump says that he knew that there were upcoming leaks coming. From from WikiLeaks. Yeah. Okay. That's that's one point. Marcy Wheeler has also suggested that this is this passage helps us see that in the Stone indictment there was this phrase um, that a senior campaign official quote was directed to reach out to Stone about the, the about upcoming WikiLeaks and that all happens a, a, around this time. So just this period of time is. July twenty second. There's a massive WikiLeaks dump. Yep. Five days later, Trump gets up and says, uh, "Russia, if you're listening, it appears from what's not redacted that in this time frame, Trump knows that there isn't that there is more coming from WikiLeaks."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So the, the so the one question is, um, did Trump know this from public bragging by Julian Assange? Maybe, but but it's not just any bragging. It would have to have been bragging in this very short window, and I, I haven't done this research, but it, it would have to be between July 22nd and July 27th. Otherwise, one is left to wonder if this is why this is Trump, who asked uh, 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 Manafort to be in touch with Stone, to be in touch with Assange. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me be clear. Right, that is. If that is what happened, and if this is under black redaction, that this is what happened, um, this is at least sufficient, uh, you know, probable cause that um, that Trump was engaging in back channels, uh, back and forth with conduits, um, uh, to coordinate uh, the uh, the release of material, and then to in th- and then to go up in front of cameras and give speeches about. Um, about this, it's it's crazy that he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dissonant that we saw it, but it is exactly the time frame that is about Russian contacts. And and so one <laughs> other thing to to mention is this also ties back to the Trump Tower meeting in June. Yeah, we don't need we don't need a smoking gun or a text message to tell us that when Don Jr. sets up that meeting. Um, uh, where he knows, where he says, you know, uh, where he's warned, where he's told he's going to get dirt, and he says, if if this is what you say it is, I love it. Yep. And, and an hour later from that meeting being set up, Trump gives a speech saying, I'm going to give a big speech next week about Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, with it, with all of that context, I think it's it, I think that Robert Mueller's report should have connected those dots, and instead we. <sighs> We, the, and it should have been in the executive summary. That should yeah. have been an executive summary to lay that out, and they failed to do that. Now, one more caveat, Virginia. Please. On, in volume one, pages 51 to 56, much of those pages are, completely, are, are, are mostly redacted. Some mm-hmm. of those pages are almost completely redacted. So at least to give Mueller a little bit more latitude, maybe we should wait to find out either what those what what's on those precise pages about WikiLeaks and Roger Stone. It's understandable that they may have been redacted, given the what we know about the harm to, to, to uh, uh, matters under investigation. Mm-hmm. And we also should wait for Mueller to be subpoenaed and to testify. Um, but I think at this stage, um, I think that was an error. So that's just so that just answers. That's that's part of my concern about what Mueller's what Mueller didn't do in the Russia volume.
0: So this is, when you mention these redacted passages, they're mostly the phrase that we now know. It's like in Watergate times, expletive deleted was the phrase on everybody's lips. But now the (laughs) phrase is, H O M harm to ongoing matter, which I think was was uh, was trending as a term yesterday. So the passages you're talking about, just let me understand the reason they're redacted is that they to reveal it would be to reveal part of an ongoing investigation rather than say damage to Trump's reputation or grand jury testimony or some of the other reasons that things are redacted.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, I, I think if we had to separate of the four reasons we know, yeah. Two of them are we should give a lot of credibility. We should we should treat as valid yes. the, when they when they're redacted for harm to ongoing matter or for protecting um, sources and methods. Those two reasons. And that's a lot of what is redacted. Yes, it is. I think It's valid to say and, and to and to give. I, and as, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say this, but I think we should give Barr the, the benefit of the doubt at this stage. On those redactions. I I have more concerns about the uh, redacting for grand jury because Barr could have gone to, if if Barr, uh, I think, was doing his job, he would have asked for those to, you know, if Mueller put that in his report and then he was comfortable with with, with making it public. I think, and and the second, and the other thing that I think is dubious is the reputational kinds of concerns.
0: But I don't think he cited that. I think in the end he agreed not to use that kind of redaction. But, you know, I agree with you that. Unless proven otherwise, the redactions seem on the up and up. But I also agree with you that whatever's under those redactions, the conclusions, what could have been in the executive summaries that you point out, don't quite seem to track. I mean, it's very unlikely that what's under the redactions is exonerating, but it does seem like there must be a line or two to justify the conclusions.
1: You know, that's we're, sex, right.
0: It's like a geometric proof where you're missing a couple of lines or something, and the end doesn't quite add up.
1: Absolutely. And if you wanted to summarize them, and you knew that they might be redacted, I think that the executive summaries should have been been written in a way that would have per, would have made the redaction completely ridiculous. Right. You could still. It's a report about Trump. You could, yeah. you could Scribe circumstances. An executive summary, lining up the the, the story I just laid out. That yep. know, that narrative of of basically that narrative is Trump no um uh, having having sufficient reason to know that WikiLeaks was connected to Russia hacking because of the Trump Tower, because of the June meeting, and because of of what's already in Mueller's indictments. M- Mueller's indictments in the in the criminal information lay out a timeline where Trump says X. And then Russian hackers immediately afterwards do why, and then DC leaks drops, drops what they hacked um, that, yeah. you don't you don't have to mention Roger Stone to summarize or, or anything Roger Stone said uh, or, or anything in a grand jury to summarize that basic um, conspiracy. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And other people, I mean, you most studiously, but also, as you say, Marcy Wheeler and Parker Malloy have pointed out that the WikiLeaks part of this in some ways is most concerning because we know and we knew going in that a conversation between Donald Trump or Paul Manafort and Prigojan at the IRA was unlikely to have happened, you know something about how we're go- how you're going to seed various memes. I mean, they they'd been IRA in particular had been had agents here since since uh, 2014, and it wasn't until 2016 that they were really gunning for Trump. So I don't think anybody saw the IRA indictments and said, well, you know, uh, one thing we know is that Mike Flynn was always in close touch with Putin's chef running you know the IRA. Right. So that's one thing. And then as for a GRU conversation, so this is military Russian military intelligence, it also seemed unlikely that Don Jr was talking to the highest levels of the FSB or the GRU and sorting out exactly from the beginning in advance how to hack both the DNC and the RNC. We have to remember they they hacked both of them but only released the results of the DNC hacks. So it comes down to the publication right, of this stuff. There were other efforts to solicit hacking. Well, I should say Guccifer, right, is is Guccifer considered a publishing force or a kind of persona, you know, they said, or is he himself doing the hacking or does it matter? And I think this is the question, too, for Julian Assange, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this also raises, I think, going back to the legal standard, I think all all the questions you're asking are why a prosecutor would wisely not bring an indictment, because I think there's a lot of there is some gray area about the legal definitions of these different entities. Mm -hmm. I think that there is also enough reasonable doubt about, you know, the facts and maybe the mental element of what was going on here. But that's very different from writing a report for Congress and the public. Yeah. When this is about, you know, it, it, we, we talked um, the last time we talked, you and I, um, for the podcast, I thought talk, we, we talked about how Mueller seems to be writing not just a prosecutorial document, but also a counterintelligence document. Yes. It, and I think that I think there's some some audience confusion in this document because, it is often written as if it were a counterintelligence document about Russia. But then when it comes to uh, you know, evidence sufficient to establish X or Y, it, it uses a, the, the criminal prosecution standard. And I, I think that's we, we would not want our national security apparatus to only act if they have if they if, if they if they're convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. We want them to act because things are likely. I remember
0: Uh, the dread Colin Powell saying you act when you have between 30% and 60% of the information. It's very far between, very far from beyond a reasonable doubt, which would be something like 95% if you could put a number on it. Yeah, that's right. And so what he said is if you have 30% of the information, and please listeners, Jed, don't think about WMDs here, but if you have (laughs) only 30%, Of information. I mean, if you have 30% of information, you know, that's enough. If you have less, it's too little. But if you have 60, if you have more than 60, you've waited too long. And with national security, you know, I mean, it's more like medicine than like a courtroom. You don't want the patient to die. And so if there's a decent chance that there's a cancer there, you proceed as if there is. And that I think you're, you're really right to point out and clarify for me anyway, the difference between a CI investigation and a criminal investigation. At the same time, the 95 percent beyond a reasonable doubt, whatever it is, standard is a weird one to talk about for indictments, right? Like if I if I have plenty of circumstantial evidence that someone's dealing heroin, I you know, I can get a subpoena for a warrant. I can and I can indict. I'm not convicting. Of course, you're not convicting on a standard below reasonable doubt. But But uh, but 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 that's preponderance of the evidence, right?
1: Yes. But okay. so that's right. Explain this
0: to me because this is hard for me. So
1: this is and I've spent a lot of time trying to think through this about what is the right standard, because I also am troubled about the mismatch. I personally feel about mass incarceration on the one hand and prosecutorial overreaching in our system generally. Mm -hmm. And then what we have in our white collar world um, after, you know, the, the 2008 Great Recession, where no one gets indicted, <laughs> right? Yes. One, yes. one person who had nothing to really do with that episode um, during the Obama administration. So, but let me take a step back. I I, I think it's important that I, I'm not saying that you can only indict if you know that you've got pr- proof beyond uh, a reasonable doubt at 95%. But yes. I also think it's a mistake to say that whenever a prosecutor thinks that there's probable cause, they should always indict or recommend indictments. That number that you gave between of Colin Powell between thirty and sixty yes. about acting that's sort of a, that's a window around you know more likely than not. And then I think there's also a window for prosecutors. It's sh- they shouldn't be acting ju- you know they shouldn't be indicting people and overcharging just when they get to fifty one percent. So yeah. that window is something like let's say it convict a jury convicts at ninety five percent. Prosecutors should be anticipating that once they you know if they're able to then get more evidence they could get to ninety five. But they've got to be starting around seventy to eighty. They they can get yeah. an indictment at fifty one, but should they? They can mm-hmm. get a warrant at fifty one, but a warrant is not putting someone into a grinder of our legal system. So yeah. I, I wish we had a more consistent approach across crimes. I wish that with mass incarceration, prosecutor on on uh, with you know with everyday people that prosecutors had this ethical stance. I I I'm concerned they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm concerned with white collar crime prosecutors take into account that with the best lawyers on the opposite side they're mm-hmm. they're fearful of losing um, this is the uh, uh, you know this is the um, Jesse isinger's great book um, about about Comey himself in the Southern district the chicken Shit club yeah um, you know about the reluctance to bring white-collar crimes I, I think in this case that window is fair the yeah. stakes are too high to just bring an indictment um, against the president of the United States. So so let me, that, that actually, that's a segue to the obstruction question. Yeah, about please. Yes, I was thinking about that. that. So we
0: parenthetically, get... I was thinking about Comey's book where he says, um, you know, they brought the Martha Stewart case, unlike the ones they avoided like chicken shits, because they had evidence of her lying, not the, you know, malfeasance and stocked shenanigans themselves, but the lying. And that brings us to obstruction.
1: If I recall correctly... Martha Stewart was indicted for obstruction, even without any evidence of an underlying crime. Yes, yes. And so, so let's just okay. Let's pause there. This entire idea that Barr has presented, um, and that is sort uh, that shapes the Mueller report, is that you um you that you don't bring an obstruction indictment unless you find evidence of an underlying crime mm-hmm. is wrong in Martha Stewart's case, you know, Martha Stewart might have something to say about that in her experience. So it's actually the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. It's the fact that it's not that the lack of underlying crime means that there is no obstruction. It goes the other way. It's the facts of obstruction mean you can't really say much with confidence about whether or not there was an underlying crime. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But before we get to obstruction, I do want to highlight one other error. I think that Mueller understates the evidence that he shows the world about Manafort and Gates and what they knew about Kalimnik. Yes, please. Let me just highlight this, it's really important. Um, What we now see in this report is that that Manafort and Gates knew that Kalimnik was a Russian spy. Gates tells Manafort, it's not just that Kalimnik is connected to Deripaska and and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It's the report tells us that Gates tells Manafort, come on dude, Kalimnik's a Russian spy. Um, that's, Mm -hmm. that's a paraphrase, (laughs) but, but, and, and
0: and Gates was also a supremely good cooperating witness with Mahler. So there's no, there's no doubt that when he's, I mean, he gives up a lot. Let's just put it that way.
1: I mean, let's pause there for a second. I, uh, Mueller is right to understand the, the challenges of relying on Gates for an indictment. We know that in Manafort's trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, the jury, when the jury talked afterward, they had, they had doubts about Gates. Um, without corroborating testimony from others, um, it's very hard to rely on Gates himself. On okay. the other hand, it it, so I, I can understand why you wouldn't want to bring a criminal prosecution based solely on Gates's testimony I think that's that's reasonable, but on the specific question about whether Kalimnik was a Russian spy, hmm. you don't have to, you don't need twelve witnesses to tell you that this guy is connected. A former, you know, one just simply has to look up Kalimnik's background to be to, to show you that that's uh, not a not a tremendous leap from the facts. And the, but here's the key detail that we learned: hmm. in this report. we learned that Gates and Manafort were regularly giving Kalimnik internal polling data, not not just you know sharing the CNN big poll. They were sharing internal polling data for months with Kalimnik. And then on August 2nd, we know in this report that Manafort gives Kalimnik 70-something pages, including not just internal polling, but identifying Wisconsin, Michigan, Mm. Pennsylvania, and Minnesota as the target states.
0: Which should tripwires for anyone who lived through the 2016 election, because of course three of the four of those states decided the election
1: for and Trump. And Minnesota was closer than it ever was before. Yeah. Now, so here's where I have concerns about the way that Mueller wrote this report. Mueller then goes into detail about that Manafort Gates um, about their uh, about their motives, and he says, well, they might have been motivated by the campaign, mm-hmm. or they might have been motivated by getting in the good graces with Deripaska, but given that there were legal issues, et cetera. Yes. How are those two things different? Right? How do you get in the? Yeah. Is it that the? Is it it was? Was the polling data showing that Manafort was a really good pollster, or that he was good at creating graphics? Hmm. The point of the of sharing the internal polls with Kalimnik was related to the campaign and to show that the campaign was close, and it would have been at least maybe not beyond a reasonable doubt, but certainly beyond probable cause. That, if you knew that Kalimnik was a spy, and if you knew that all around the summer of 2016, that Russians were—you—you'd uh, know, been in a meeting in Trump Tower with Russians telling you that they had dirt, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then you give them polling data and identifying which target states might be important. I mean, come on, that—that that might not be beyond a reasonable doubt, but that is enough to highlight in a uh, to to not include the sentence that there was that they could not establish that there was a that there was a a, a conspiracy between Ru- between Trump campaign officials and Russia again just like you said before you don't need manafort to have a one on one meeting with putin to mm-hmm. establish a conspiracy mm-hmm. there are cutouts, there are go-betweens and a conspiracy often works with indirect contacts i think that moment Mueller should have framed it and put it in the executive summary as something to identify for congress right to to make the public see that as opposed to trying to find that on page 155 around all these other redactions
0: there are certain and i wonder about this and i i don't want to break your stride but there are certain <laughs> moments where you can almost imagine a conflict in OSC, and there's some other evidence that there might be some conflict there, where there's a discussion about, can we say Kalimnik is a spy? Well, in English and American common law, you have to be very careful about saying that. But in common parlance, we always hear, once KGB, always KGB, that the oligarchs don't do anything without Putin, that Prigozhin, Putin's chef, is essentially an agent of the Russian government. But all those things, there's a certain um, decorousness to Mueller about making these calls that people, you know, and you don't have to be Seth Abramson or Louise Mensch to connect these dots. These are the kinds of things that we've known about how Russia works all the time. I mean, anyway, and then the second great example of that is Michael Cohen saying in, in many places that he was directed to lie by Donald Trump. And then clarifying that before Congress to say he doesn't say, soldier, you now must lie. What Trump does is speak in some kind of code like an extorter, you know, it, it, like this is the way it happened. Right, Mike? And, <laughs> right. you know, and yet Mueller demurs there and, and will not consider that subornation of perjury because he's imagining a room of gentlemen where if you're asked to lie, it looks much more like Haldeman and Nixon talking, even though that had its own vagueness. But then it does, you know, like um, Sammy the Bull Gravano talking like, you know. So I think that's very interesting, too, that I sort of can imagine some of the lawyers in the room. And if you think about the people who talk to BuzzFeed, their sources, they purport to be close to OSC. I've seen nothing to suggest that they're not. But they say that they're with Cohen, that this was being directed to lie, where other people who've worked less with the mob or who, you know, who who have a different standard for that will refuse to call that subornation of perjury. And I just think that's very interesting that there are are these kind of competing idioms. You know, it's almost like revolutionary war soldiers wanting to sort of behave with certain standards of uh, or, or, you know, English soldiers fighting a jungle army that, you know, wait, but we fight, we don't eat our dogs and we don't and we tend to the battle wounded on the other side. (laughs) And, we, you know, and uh, and then the Trump types are just like, what are you talking about? We didn't he say something like fuck shit up or like, you know, (laughs) make shit happen like he's he's just playing a very different game. And talking in this thuggy way. And anyway, I feel that conflict in the report. And you feel Mueller doing what you say, being conservative, at least conservative small c. I'm not going to call that a crime because we didn't hear Manafort say to Putin himself, let's conspire.
1: Yes. And there are other legal commentators. There's a a Paul Seamus Ryan also said that Mueller kind of got described coordination under campaign finance law. Incorrectly, and ah. you don't need a either an explicit or an implicit agreement for something to be coordinated. In fact, if you required that, Congress said that that would be giving too much of a loophole for people to get out to get out from under coordination. Um, it, it can be loosely uh, coordinated by by context and not by implicit or explicit agreement. So that seems to be a mistake too. Given that the campaign finance questions are part of this. Criminal conspiracy. Yeah. Right? Soliciting yeah. a foreign. Let me also say, I agree with the Mueller conclusion that simply meeting Russian, meeting foreign, foreign officials or foreigners, and having conversations with them, that cannot be criminal, right? We cannot call that receiving something of value is simply ha- talking to or meeting with Vassilnitskaya, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it is very important that we acknowledge that we shouldn't turn campaign finance law. Into something that would put a chilling effect on the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I think it's important to distinguish between that correct interpretation of campaign fa- finance law and what s- seems to be an incorrect um, interpretation of campaign finance law when there is a when there's coordination not requiring such a such a co- uh, re- requiring such an agreement. And I think that's what I was um, talking about before. And um, conspiracy,
0: and also, I mean, conspiracy and Ricos are by nature think conspiracy means whisper together that these are not handshake contract deals. And for the prosecutors in the room in the special counsel's office who were accustomed to dealing with the mafia, I mean, I don't know. What I keep thinking about with Mueller is that he turned the FBI, into a counterintelligence operation after 9-11, and that he's probably still fighting the last war. It's just human nature. And counterintelligence probably interests him more than the criminal stuff. And he's used to thinking about the really complex operation of trying to find terrorist organizations that work in cells as opposed to mafia thugs who hide and play in sight. And, and that, this thing is so brain-scrambling that I honestly don't blame one brain, Robert Mueller's, for being unable to get every part of it. But I do hold out hope that the counterintelligence investigation, much of which is redacted here, some of which just isn't here at all or isn't even hinted at here, will still, in the hands of the FBI, pull off more indictments.
1: I think that's right. I mean, just one quick thing. When you said conspire and whisper together, it popped yeah. into my head. Oh, that sounds really interesting, and I just quickly looked it up because I thought spire also like respirate, and that's that's right. Uh, yes, it's actually, it's actually to breathe together. Yes, you to breathe to together. You, yes, you to say, it's not even to whisper. The the Amazing. origin of the word conspiracy is to coordinate, even if it's by com- just body language. The, the, the literal body language of breathing is enough to be etym- etymologically a conspiracy. That's and,
0: amazing. And that is also very much what Michael Cohen and I still hold on to Mr. Trump speaks in code and I understand that code.
1: Yes. They've been breathing together for so many years. <laughs> yes. and, a, and wasn't there a passage, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there a passage where um, Trump says to one of his lawyers in the obstruction side, maybe it was to McGann. oh, I've never had a lawyer take notes before. <sighs> I think it may have been Jamal Green at Columbia who may have said this, who said, this is the most damning sentence in the entire report. (laughs) And that is dead on. It speaks volumes or it breathes volumes about how Trump doesn't get nailed for crimes over the course of his career. And again, here, he doesn't have he makes sure that his lawyers don't take notes he doesn't text. He doesn't email. Mm-hmm. And he is just a master at, at at surrounding himself with people who will follow his breathing and body language. Yeah. But on obstruction, let me say that uh, this is both how Barr I think mischaracterized the obstruction, and also how Mueller sets up that this mer- mischaracterization. And this is also about Mueller being a big C conservative in terms of executive power. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that the obstru- there are so many episodes in the in the obstruction volume that are um, that I think are pretty damning. Yeah. Um, and if Mueller Muller should have written a sentence like, um, but for the OLC policy, right, or uh, uh, of not indicting a sitting president,
0: mm.
1: there would there was sufficient evidence here there to indict for obstruction of justice. I mean mm-hmm. I, I just think when you look at the you look at these events, um whether it was firing Comey, trying to fire uh Mueller himself, mm-hmm. um and and some of and in context, uh what seemed to be pardon dangles, that, that it seems like Mueller I I understand why Mueller concluded I'm not begrudging let me be clear. I I think that Mueller probably made the right decision here not to hmm. call for an indictment. But I hmm. think that that, that this was not written clearly enough to say that this was probably criminal. Um, I think it's explicit that Mueller is inviting Congress. I think he talks about, you know, he talks about the separation of powers and Congress's role. Mm-hmm. But I think that the report should have been clearer about how this constitutes legal obstruction. Rather, uh, 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 and, and maybe he did. Maybe that's, maybe when you read the report in, in totality, That's the message he conveys. But I think it should have been written more explicitly um, in the in the summaries.
0: Yes, it was such a Rorschach that it was just manfully, aggressively misinterpreted and spun by Barr in the introduction. So in his remarks, he said, I think in response to a question that I mean, he said in no uncertain terms when asked whether it was Justice Department regs that he thinks stopped Mueller from making an indictment on obstruction. And he, you know, said something. I mean, I can't quote it exactly, but it was like, mark my words, no. It was on the merits or on the non-merits of the obstruction case that he decided not to indict. And that, the fact that that was so important to Barr that he could obfuscate there, because there are instances in the report that suggest that the regulations were very much on Mueller's mind and that his sense of broad executive powers... And God bless him. You know, we've had everybody's least favorite poltergeist, Ross Garber, on this show, the impeachment defense attorney, who I think from private conversations is politically liberal, but yes. because he just has someone has to have their eye out for the executive branch itself, right? right? And Can we
1: just pause and give a shout out to Ross Garber out there? I think we we, we love Ross.
0: He keeps us on our toes. And, yeah. he, you know, I always call him a buzzkill because he loves when everybody's zealously gunning to, you know, show that the report should take Trump out tomorrow. He always brings in some like measured, yeah, no, not really. He's immensely interesting. And I think he clarifies the thinking of lots of other people who might overreach or might not understand the long-term importance of those pillars, like a call of towers, I think of, of Notre Dame, that of the executive branch that still need to stand even after its desecration by Donald Trump. And Absolutely. Donald Trump would persuade us that, you know, les tats, say moi, to say Donald Trump, but it is not. And there is an office of the presidency that needs to outlast him. And so that, I think, is important. And that may have been on Mueller's mind when he didn't indict. But what made me mad is Barr saying, no, he didn't indict because Trump didn't obstruct justice, conclusively didn't obstruct justice. And, uh, and that just played right into Trump's hands and I think was really malfeasance on Barr's part.
1: I think that's all right. And I I also want to just add that, you know, it's important for people to keep us on our toes and keep us in check. I think Ross does that. Um, And I I also think a lot of people have have made good arguments pushing back about how to the risks of criminalizing regular government business, you know, criminalizing president doing things that are covered by Article 2 but it's important that Mueller did not adopt that view that Barr expressed in his memo. I mean, to give Mueller credit on the law. And, and uh, I I think that this was Mueller answering uh, maybe that memo by saying, you know, Congress has a role to, uh, to keep the executive branch, including the president um, from obstructing justice. And, um, and so what's true, I think what's, challenging here is that uh Mueller says that but then is unwilling to actually make those conclusions when presented with the facts Right? Like, i think he's right on the law i mm-hmm. think he's also right that on the law and the politics of indicting a sitting president i think he made that right choice but why is it that they that for example um in the report on page 101 102 mm-hmm. there's this information about uh, on the obstruction material we know that um, that Trump Jr. lied about the meeting, uh, about the the Trump Tower meeting, um, and there is there is information here where um, uh, the the president participated, right? And I, we know, in fact, that the president's lawyers told Mueller in yeah. a previous document um, that Trump participated in giving in telling Don Jr. to lie um, about what the what the Trump Tower meeting was about.
0: I don't mean to give the last word to myself, but I do want to tell you some breaking news on Twitter. Justin Miller, uh, the National Editor of the Daily Beast, tweeted, impeachment is embedded in Mueller's report. He's not the first person to say this. Mueller's point is we, the prosecutor's office, can't accuse Trump of crimes because OLC memo forbids indictment. And then... The report says, and this part's verbatim, only the House of Representatives, quote, has the authority to bring charges of criminal misconduct through impeachment. Right. So he says this is an impeachment referral, if not an indictment. And guess who comes in and says this is true. Volume two is plainly an impeachment referral. Ross Garber. So I'm going to forward you that tweet. Please and do. We're going to look forward to volumes three to 20 of this report, which hopefully will happen in Congress and an impeachment.
1: I'm going to go the other way. I think that I think it's, it's too soon to impeach. I think that just we're talking about prosecutorial discretion and being wise. I think we want to hear from Mueller live. We want the tax. We want uh, we want subpoenas for the tax records and Deutsche Bank. It is I, I think that there is more to unredact before the House moves forward with impeachment now. I think it goes the other way.
0: Who wants to agree on everything? I am glad to hear you say that. Jed Sugarman is a professor at Fordham Law School with a Yale JD and PhD. He writes frequently for Slate on Legal Matters. Thanks very much for being
1: here, Jed. Thank you, Virginia.
0: And that's it for today's show. Tell us what you think. Let's make some Twitter threads together. I'm page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast, Ross Garber, if you want to weigh in, I'm all ears. And before we go, I highly encourage you to sign up for Slate Plus. Today's the day. It's a mere $35 for the first year. That's highly competitive pricing for top quality content. Go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Barrett Jacob. Everybody needs a nap today. Steve Waltine performed today's sketch. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trump.